Charles could have learned a lot from his opponents. And, and if he had displayed a lot of the um, characteristics of his opponents, there, there either wouldn't have been a civil war at that point, or he would have won it outright. Welcome to the Aspects of History podcast. Now this week's episode features a conflict that I haven't covered yet, the English Civil Wars. Taking place between 1642 and 1651, it was a particularly bloody war involving England, Scotland and Ireland. Why, I hear you ask, do we call it the English Civil War? Well, we deal with that very question with historian and novelist Mark Turnbull, who is also the host of his own podcast, Civil War based, called Cavalier Cast. Now, Mark's written a trilogy of novels set during the period, and I've put the links to these and also to his podcast. Now, in our chat, we cover Charles I, his wife Henrietta Maria, the dashing Prince Rupert, and the battles of Edge Hill and Naseby. Finally, we ask, are we cavaliers or roundheads? Now, you can find out which one I am at the end of the pod. You'll find links of what we discuss in the show notes. If you want to get a hold of me, you can. I'm on the Twitter, at OllieWCQ. And you can email me at history at aspectsofhistory.com. If you can subscribe, I'd be very grateful. And if you're on an iPhone and feel like giving a review, well, that would be just fine and dandy. I hope you enjoy our chat. Mark Turnbull, welcome to the podcast. Hi, Ollie. Thanks for having us. Yep. Yeah, well, a pleasure, a pleasure. And um, I, I've been very uh, excited about this chat because it's talking about the English Civil Wars. Yeah. And um, so we're going to talk a little bit about the history of that. And then obviously we're going to be talking about your novels, a trilogy, which is the third of which is just about to be published, That's uh, all set in the English Civil Wars. And then I'm also very lucky because, you know, I'm in the presence of a expert podcaster, um cavalier <laughs> cast so we'll talk a little bit about that so our listeners um can if they want to explore further they can uh, have a look at your podcast as well and i'll put all these links in the, in the show notes for our listeners so first things first and i was just saying before we started recording that i'm I, whilst i'm fascinated by the english civil wars my knowledge is probably severely lacking certainly in comparison to you mark um but i just wondered if we could kick off before we get into your your novels, how did it? Why did the Civil War start, and how did it start? Um, well, so a really, really good question, and and I guess there there are numbers of answers to to that question, but I I think the stock uh, the stock one is really it's a long road to the war. Um, the catalyst itself is Ireland. Um, which erupts with the Catholic rebellion in 1641. Um, so if we talk about the English Civil War, um, that that's one of the catalysts. And the issue is um, an army is needed to restore order there. Uh, that army is legally controlled by the king. Um, and naturally, Parliament at that point are at loggerheads with the king and they fear uh, what might happen if the king is in control uh, of an armed force. You know, you've got religion, there's um, there's taxes, uh, there's the management of, of the, the country, um, the royal government, and there's lots of aspect to it. But that was the catalyst. However, so I am researching a, a biography of Charles I at the moment and, and writing that. And I think what, what is really um, underexplored is that we talk about the catalyst to, to causing the, the civil wars at that moment but what we tend to forget is everything that happened from the turn of the the century so that whole lead up from uh james the sixth of scotland uh coming into england um his beliefs um and policies which in the main charles adopted um you've got centuries of of royal government along the lines of you know things like the star chamber um James himself was was one for illegal taxation, you know, raising money by any means. 
Um, so really, if if you start to then look before the war and the immediate years before that, the question opens up a new thread. And I, I, I firmly believe that war itself, it, it almost got to that brink that when James died and Charles took over, um, the country was ready. It was a, a very much at a, at a corner, uh, ready to turn. And the king went straight ahead. Parliament actually wanted to turn off um, and, and wanted something different. They had been um, petitioning James. Um, every time they were called, it was getting really sticky. Uh, James was having to dissolve them. He ruled alone for 10 years. Charles did for 11. Charles is the 11 years tyranny. James isn't. That That is um, not uh, condemned <laughs> in the same right. way. So, so, so from what you're saying there, so James the the first of England, James the sixth of Scotland, he he behaves in a similar way, and that he's at loggerheads with Parliament in the same way that Charles the first is, is, and yet Charles the first is 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 condemned with history. Really, is absolutely. that right? Yeah, absolutely. Right. The, a, a lot of what um, you know, Charles's path is almost. Um, decided for him by his father so you know Charles is given and, and Charles's elder brother who died um, you know a long time before they were given books on the matter from James he um, you know drummed into them that policy on divine right that belief that that they were appointed by God the Stuarts were there to unite these kingdoms um, religiously as well as um, in government uh, you know and and I think it got to that point where there was a lot of hostility to those policies and the the, the rule, um, and people were looking for change, and and that just built up and built up. James, you know, really manhandled his parliaments. You know, he used to tear out. You know, he once tore out a, a document from the the journal in Parliament um, because it criticised. Um, criticized him you know he he was telling them you know you sit by uh, my grace uh, they disagreed and said you know we've got a long-standing right to sit and of course that that paper was torn off he really dealt with them very much like a headmaster to school children charles learned by that yes that I'm, a lot of my knowledge I, um um it probably comes because it's so it's, uh, well, it's a brilliant film but uh, the the film cromwell Yes, um, yeah. But there is that scene where, which although Cromwell isn't involved, I think they, the film took liberties there. But the MPs that um, Charles enters Parliament, this is prior to the outbreak of the war, isn't it? When he enters Parliament to arrest members of Parliament, is that correct? That That's right, yes. Yeah. So, so this is um, in January 42, if we use the, the new style calendar. And that that's when... Um, th this is actually following years and years of turmoil um, between the, the kingdoms and the king. And enough is enough, you know, it gets to that point, you know, you've got the capital that is um, in uproar. There is the you know, mobs are parading around the streets, sailors. There's at that point, Charles attempts to take the upper hand um, because it, Contrary to what, again, contrary to 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 what the the belief is, Charles was on the back foot for years, um, or for at least you know that whole 1641. He was given ground, he was granted concessions, um, and and Parliament was coming back for more and more and more. Um, and then in the end, you know, that's when he thought, well, enough is enough. Um, we we need to stop uh, what's happening here. Enough. Merchants were, were were complaining because their warehouses in London were getting stormed by mobs. Um, you know, it, it, France was putting pressure on, saying, "Well, how can we trade with you as a, you know, a nation?" Um, so really, the the country had come to a, a crisis point, um, and and that attempt to arrest the the five MPs and one peer. Um, as you see, it is portrayed in Cromwell, which is a a great film, if not historically accurate. <laughs> So Charles is, I mean, so we're not going to do a commentary of the film, but he is is played by Alec Guinness because I wanted to talk about Charles the first. He does come across as rather a sort of a, a delicate effect, um, obviously deeply religious. His approach to Parliament 
at the same time, he's rather a, he comes across as rather a weak fellow as well. So I just wondered if you could talk a little bit about Charles I as the king and the man. Yeah, so I, th- I think this is the, so with Charles, there's a lot of times that he, ca- he can't win, you know. So if he um, is firm, he's often firm in the wrong way. Um, and the way that he tackles MPs um, is very much in his, his father's uh, style. Um, he is telling them that, you know, they are beholden to him. Um, and, and of course, they don't like that, you know, um, that that's quite autocratic from, from their point of view. Um, it's certainly tactless at times. Um, but there's that deep belief that, you know, stems from that deep belief that he is there um, to rule that country um, as God's you know lieutenant on earth. Um, he's been chosen for that. He's there to protect his people. Um, that protection is how he sees fit. And I think from the very start of the reign, Charles gets onto the wrong foot and Parliament get onto the wrong foot. So it is it takes two to tango. And what you have is Parliament wanting that change, but then they make that change or they attempt to force that change by telling Charles, look, we've granted um, the, the right to collect tonnage and poundage revenues to monarchs for life. You're just getting it for one year. And, and for Charles, with that innate belief in in his right to rule that is a slap in the face um and it's humiliating you know to it, it means that his government is then beholden to annual payouts uh, he can't he literally can't rule he can't fulfill his um uh, desires for his government for that you know that that term um he's got a lot of a lot of wishes you know he wants to go and help his sister recover the the palatine um he wants to help the Protestant cause in Europe. Um, and that is all from the start uh, comes cra- crashing down because of this financial issue. But for his part, you know, he takes that and uh, responds by dissolving them uh, in the end um, and then going on to that 11 years uh, ruling without Parliament. So it, it really do, it gets to that point where neither trust each other. Um, and and certainly the the way that they treat each other doesn't give either of them any hope that that there could be some sort of meeting point or mutual ground. So then war is inevitable, I guess. That, that's exactly it. Yeah, I mean once some once one makes a move against the other, um, at that point you you know both sides have to safeguard themselves and disable the other one from from coming back at them um, at a later point. Um, the question is, how far do you go with that? Uh, and I think certainly it got to that point where in the end, Charles was brought down from from uh, that ivory tower, you know, and we see him agreeing to the execution of his chief minister, um, which is a, a huge, you know, event for him to, you know, a very able minister, uh, a ruthless minister, but able and uh, successful, loyal, um, and uh, Charles is forced for the sake of stability and for his family and for for his own safety to to agree to that execution. Uh, and is that the Earl that, of Strafford? That's right. Yeah, so, never forgave himself for that. Yeah, that so that that is always described as the big event, isn't it? So, so when war starts and before before um the uh, armies are engaged is there a kind of belief amongst experts in this period as to were there a sort of a favorite before the war started did both militaries were they even evenly matched and so we were looking at a long drawn out conflict which is ultimately what happened or or were the because uh, one would assume that the royalists might be favourites to win it if we were talking in sort of football. <laughs> football <laughs> yeah, yeah, you, you would, yeah. And I think, be, and this this is the the thing throughout the civil war. I think because Charles wears the crown, um, there's a natural assumption, you know, that that he has the power, he's got the influence, um, he should be able to win this. But actually. You know, he leaves, he ends up, and after we talked about the arrest of the, the six members, uh, the attempted arrest of the six members, when that fails, you know, all hell breaks out. Um, and the, the parliamentary leaders are almost goading Charles into that move because they want to portray him as a tyrant. 
Um, and when he when he does go into the, the chamber on his own uh, with his nephew, leaves the, the troops outside. Um, it's it's from that moment uh, that the mobs in London almost force the royal family out. And you can see through the, the letters in the immediate aftermath of that for months afterwards, Charles never believes that this is going to be an issue. You know, he thinks that um, he can return to London and he makes all plans to go back. Um, but as the, the weeks go by, you know, he's given conciliatory messages, apologising for having done it, um, uh, assuring them that he meant no issue. He was never going to you know, make an, an illegal arrest. He would have them tried by due law. Um, and the, and, and uh, this is sorry to interrupt. And, that, and this is because the monarch is not allowed to walk into the House of Commons, is that that's the that's a sort of um, crossing the Rubicon event. It is. Yeah, it, it is. And, and and that's because of parliamentary privilege. So it, it's this uh, the 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 rights of MPs that they can cannot be um, tried um, by the king. You know, they, they, they have to be tried by their peers, you know, that parliamentary the rights. The same with the House of Lords, you know, how lords have to be tried by the peers. Um, and, and then there's the question of the king who try who can try the king. Um, so, yeah, so when Charles leaves London, um, you know, you've got that powerhouse of, of, of finance that is then, in effect, turned over to Parliament. That is the first change in Parliament's fortunes, which allows them to go on to be able to then issue their own edicts. You know, they start then saying, look, we um, the, the militia is no longer controlled by the king and that's by our decree. We don't need to pass that into law. And that is a really momentous thing to do. And that did alienate a lot of people. But by that time, they had such a foothold that they could just do it and run with it. Um, and, and they were able to raise fairly quickly a sizable army, whereas the king struggled. You know, so he's in York. He's trying to scrape together recruits. Parliament at that point are saying, you know, if you insist on raising troops, you know, we're going to, you know, you should not be raising troops. That's a warlike manner. Um, but at the same time, you know, from his point of view, he is facing a threat to his authority and the stability of the kingdom. And who were the leaders of the parliamentarian forces? So you had the political arm, which was John Pym. So a, a man who is as tenacious as the king. Uh, but is much, much more wily than the king could ever be. Um, he's nicknamed the ox because of his, um, you know, his work ethic. You know, he will work tirelessly like an ox. Um, and and Pym uh, really does lead the, the, the whole parliamentary faction. Um, but the military arm of it is given to the Earl of Essex. Now, Essex is um, not a, a particularly suitable military leader okay you know a very unexpected i would say from from ability wise i mean he has got a, you know a lot of um, military background you know he has fought abroad um the only thing is he's usually found in the house of lords in a cloud of tobacco smoke you know <laughs> he was de described as very plodding however he is the most senior peer on the parliamentary side that's declared for them so you know i think there's that um, attempt of add extra legitimacy by by getting a fairly significant peer. Now, there's one name that we haven't mentioned yet, but who dominates um, the Civil War and then the sort of 10 or so years after the Civil War. W where was he at the outbreak of the Civil War? What sort of um, and I say he it's Oliver Cromwell. Mr. And Cromwell where, yeah. where was where what wh what's he up to? Because he he's not a, he's not an immediately in, in, a, in a position of authority, is he? No, he isn't. No, not immediately. So um, so when hostilities do break out, so Cromwell is uh, a minor officer in the uh, what comes to be known as the Eastern Association. So Parliament's stronghold in East Anglia. Um, and, and then, you know, I think his ability that there's a rapid uh, rise over over the next year or so, you know, he's a colonel. Um, he then um, at, at the point when Parliament reform their their armies um, and they try and remove people like Essex, who joined the war and joined Parliament in a bid to sort of 
reduce the king to a point where he will agree to a lot of demands. Um, they, they see that Parliament want to go beyond that. Um, and, and that's when a lot of these peers or the Earls of Manchester, Earl of Essex, uh, tend to, to back off at that point. Um, par Parliament try well, force them out, really. So they pass um, a bill uh, that um, says that any military leader cannot hold uh, or cannot be a member of Parliament. Um, that in effect gets rid of Essex, Manchester, and the others. Uh, and Manchester was Essex, uh, Manchester was Cromwell's commander in that Eastern Association army. Um, so it, it opens up the path for Cromwell. But there is a slight problem because Cromwell is an MP. So this is where <laughs> there is an exception made for Cromwell, and um, he is um, he is allowed to be Lieutenant General of the new model army under uh, Sir Thomas Fairfax um, while he's an MP. I see. OK, so the first battle that we have in the Civil War is, I think, Edge Hill, although it's probably correct me if I'm getting any of this wrong, because I'm sure I am. Um, but because the first, actually the Civil War separated. Well, I guess I always thought it was two, but I, I believe that there is considered to be three civil wars when Charles II returns. So if, I think we're going to part that for this discussion. Talk about the first two ones. Yeah. Now, before we go into Edge Hill, I just wanted to ask, am I getting it wrong? Is it the English civil wars or is it the wars of the three <laughs> kingdoms? Well, you could have another war over this, actually. <laughs> and quite frequently it is. It is. You know, it does elicit serious debate. Um, so, you know, it, it's more commonly known as English Civil War. And the problem is that if you start calling it by something else, people don't recognise which war it is. Um, so that's why English Civil War is so popular. But that that's fine. And this is the complexity of the period, because that that's fine to term hostilities in England from 1642 to 1644. But at that point, the Scots uh, join Parliament. So, you know, it becomes a British civil war. Um, you know, you've got Ireland still um, in rebellion. So there are Scottish and English forces fighting there. So, you know, actually, that depending on your viewpoint, you could have the um, you could have the first two wars that Charles had with Scotland over religion as the first and second civil wars. Um, you could then have the Irish. What, what year? What year would they be? That is 1639 and 40. OK, so, you know, you could have one, two, three. The English Civil War is the fourth. Uh, then the, the next civil war that breaks out in 1648 is the, the fifth and so on, you know. The, OK, so um, for the sake of this discussion, we'll call it the uh, English Civil Wars, I think. Yeah, um, I'm, I'm, I can I can feel I can sense listeners are. Uh, maybe uh, they're far more clever than me, but I'm getting a bit flummoxed by it all. Right. So Edge Hill, first first battle. Yep. Um, and it's a it's a draw, isn't it? Well, no, I think I think it's a royal victory um, in terms of strategy. So they, they do fight to a standstill and, and they can't break each other. But in the end, uh, Parliament march their army away from the field towards Warwick. So really, it leaves the road to London open. And that is what they've both been um, trying to um, avoid. Parliament don't want the king to approach London with his army. Um, so in effect, I, I would say that that is a, a strategic victory for the royalists, regardless of the, the actual battle that day. That was more of a draw. So uh, why didn't they capitalise on, on that? victory if if the the road to london is open they don't take london at any point do they the royalist forces they, they don't no so this so you asked earlier about charles the man and charles the king i think this is um beyond any doubt um the, the fact that they didn't go on to london stems to that contradiction so charles um for all he believes in divine right you know for all uh, that he sees his will as being um, unquestionable on on many points 
he does not want to take his capital by force because in effect that would lose something Charles has always relied on and believed in and sort of his core uh, principle is that he um, should be protecting his people. Um, you know, he's fighting the civil war, but what Charles sees is that it's a, a nest of traitors. It's not his whole people that's against him. Um, there's a core of people that are seducing his people away from their natural loyalty. Um, so for Charles to then go with his army to London, that is in effect imposing his monarchy by force. And that's something he does not want to do. Um, of course, that that's the, the, the trouble, isn't it? Because you have military leaders there who are saying, you know, you must advance, you know, you need to go straight to London, uh, dismiss Parliament, station the troops on the street and restore order. Um, but Charles uh, won't have that. That's um, mad, really. I mean, if, if he'd taken London, he has um, other parts of the country already. I can't I can't honestly see what what does Parliament do then? Surely this is this massive strategic mistake that, well, costs him his life ultimately, which is a bit of a spoiler alert for those who don't know what happens to Charles I. But surely this is the biggest mistake of, of, of that he, ma he makes, I guess, amongst quite a few during the Civil War. Certainly, I think the Queen always thought that, you know, Prince Rupert as well. You know, Rupert was all for heading straight to London. And, and really, you know... Yeah. But, but who's to say that if Charles did approach London with his army, that, the you know, he doesn't have to go into London. You know, the army could just be uh, nearby. Who's to say that the city might have actually, you know, risen in his support. Um, but as it, as it was, he, he dallies, he tries to, he takes Oxford, um, you know, marches into Oxford, um, has a look at Banbury Castle. And by the time he does make up his mind to head towards London, uh, Essex has reformed and, and regrouped uh, and is leading the parliamentary army back and overtakes the king, gets to London first. It's a real race. The two armies are then, they make a dash for London together um, and, and Essex gets there first. So you've mentioned Henrietta, uh, or you've mentioned his queen, which is Henrietta Maria. And I think you you will you, you're probably fresh with a lot of knowledge about her because I know you've just read a a, a a new book by Leander Delisle. But excellent, yeah, Henrietta excellent. Maria is she she's always been presented as sort of you know almost a, like a Lady Macbeth figure who who's pulling the strings of the uh, poor helpless Charles the First. But that's um, yeah yeah that might be a rather outdated view of her. But I wondered if you could just talk a little bit about um, his queen. Yeah, so you're right. That that is that is the the view that's kind of come down from history. I mean, you know, at the end of the day, Parliament won the war, so we're not really going to be getting glorious pictures of Charles and his queen. Um, but yeah, she, the 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 fact of the matter is that Henrietta is a fierce, courageous woman who who does her utmost to um to serve the king to protect him um to you know she 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 furnishes him with men ammunition money um she's abroad you know you know diplomatically um trying to get uh, support for him um and of course parliament don't like that you know they they quickly round on her and and sort of try and condemn her in the same way that um the earl of strafford was put to death um they threatened to impeach the queen legally execute um if they can get a, their hands on her um you know because they to, what what they are saying is that the queen is um is further in a war um on the people uh, of this kingdom and it doesn't yeah. help she's she's not english either is she so that's exactly doesn't help and, and here again is another hangover from james you know so james um had it as soon as he inherited the english throne uh, he wanted to marry his heir off to a Catholic um, because he wanted to marry his daughter to a Protestant and get that balance. James always wanted to be a peacemaker um, and hold the balance uh, between Catholic and Protestant. But what, what he what he sort of failed to understand is the divisions in his own kingdom that that was creating. And of course, Charles eventually married Henrietta, uh, a Catholic French lady. That didn't go down well at all, needless to say, with the Puritans especially. Um, and then you mentioned Rupert as well, who's this, he's sort of the epitome 
of the cavalier the cavalier side that you know the dashing cavalry officer he's uh, he's well he's played very well by uh timothy Dalton. i keep on mentioning the film which is just exposing how how um how shallow i am but um he's he's played by timothy dalton in in the movie and uh, uh, but he's just sort of he rides around looks fantastic but yeah seems to make huge numbers of mistakes but he's very brave yeah <laughs> yeah absolutely that's a that's a good summary yeah so uh riding around with a poodle under his arm um <laughs> as you say flamboyant uh, you know, he, he's been described by um, a contemporary, Sir Philip Warwick, said the prince will always be a soldier. Uh, and he was until the restoration when he when he stepped into the Navy. He, you know, he even put soldier and above settling down and, uh, you know, founding a, a family. And if he had done that, then his descendants would have been uh, monarchs of Britain instead of the Hanovers. Really? Um, yeah. Yeah. What's the family connection? So, so Rupert's obviously Rupert's mother is Charles's sister, Elizabeth Elizabeth of Bohemia. Um, so Rupert's younger daughter, Sophia, oh. it's her children, um, George of Hanover, who eventually inherits the throne of Britain um, after the death of Queen Anne. So, if so, be, with obviously Rupert being a male um, child of Elizabeth of Bohemia, uh, born earlier than Sophia, the, the crown would have passed to Rupert's children. Of course, he wouldn't have foreseen that. Um, you know, it's it's probably a slim chance, but, you know, he wouldn't have foreseen the, the revolutions that, that took it from Charles I's family. But yeah, I mean, in, in the end, he had a, a, a son and a daughter, and the daughter was alive at that point. But of course, they were um, out of wedlock. And uh, it had no right to the throne but in effect we could have had queen ruperta that was uh, his daughter's name <laughs> oh he dodged a bullet there then right um <laughs> so so we should probably probably we, we've talked gosh we could t- we've got quite a long way through and we've talked um we've bet we've only just really started the civil war <laughs> but um we see we see a series of battles there's marston moore isn't there and yep. then uh, which i think we we get sort of more parliamentarian victories and i just wanted to kind of skip over that and get to naseby because that's where your novel starts i think that's right Pretty yeah well. the... i know having read it <laughs> <laughs> but yeah uh, exactly yeah so the the king's spy starts at the very um end of naseby um as as the royalists lose that battle and uh it, it's a battle that it's a, a pivotal moment in the war um it's if edgehill was the the start of the war the first pitch battle nearsby is the beginning of the end um and it's the royalist defeat there which is so complete um however it's not the end of everything so contrary to what what is often said so the royalists lose their core veteran infantry at, the, at that battle um, they are cut off um, and this is because the royalist cavalry um, the right wing under prince rupert have defeated the enemy cavalry on that wing but then left the field in pursuit um, the other wing of royalist cavalry are defeated by cromwell so the Royalist infantry are left vulnerably exposed, which is exactly what happened at Edge Hill. Um, but this time Cromwell sweeps in and attacks them um, and, and they can't, you know, the, 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 the Royalist infantry are such uh, good fighters that they're actually pushing the parliamentary new model army back. They are, they have them on a point, a, a breaking point. And if it wasn't for that uh, lack of cavalry support and for Cromwell coming in, um, there's a chance that the king could have won that battle. And in the end, those those royalist infantrymen were were decimated. Uh, oh, that's interesting. So because the new model army, which was created during the first civil war, it always is described as, you know, this was well, the first sort of professional army or the first Brit- incarnation of the British army. But it's yeah. interesting that the royalist forces had a lot of success against them in that battle of Naseby. That, that's right. Yeah, absolutely. And then there's also the occasion where um, as the royalist infantry are getting hard pressed, the king has um, a, a small cavalry reserve and he makes ready to lead that 
um, but is prevented from doing so. So um, there's an earl that's next to him, the Earl of Carnworth, grabs the bridle of his horse and says, will you go upon your death? And um, because the king's horse turns, um, a lot of people take it that the king is leaving the field. Uh, and, and at that moment, there's no going back. We now. I just wanted you because this your novel is the King's Spy, so um, uh, obviously espionage. I wondered if you could just describe a little br- briefly the plot because set around such dramatic events, um, it, I raced through it through it, and it's a nice, it's a short novel, um, but a, a, a riveting read. No, I'm pleased you enjoyed it. Yeah. So, so the the King's Spy. So it it um it deals with the aftermath of Nearsby uh, in the main. So. When um, the king uh, leaves the field, uh, all of his baggage is captured, um, and that includes his whole cabinet of letters. So it's it's not just a military victory. This is um, a, a propaganda victory, complete propaganda victory, because in that stash of letters, you've got letters to the queen um, who's abroad. Um, you've got um, you've got letters to other uh, monarchs, for example, Denmark asking for support. Um, there's there's vital information about strategy um, on the royalist side. You know, um, the the letters uh, give rise to um, people who are, are maybe betraying secrets. You know, so and and the 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 book itself. So the the character um, in the story is fictional, and and obviously all of the the basis of the story is is fact. Um, but Maxwell, the Captain Maxwell Walker, who's a royalist captain, he is sent to uh, to get um, a, a royalist code uh, key key for the the king's letters back from a nearby mansion. And uh, when he, when he's there, he, he no sooner gets there than the parliamentarians turn up. So he ends up, um, without giving too many spoilers away, ends up having to um, act as a, a member of that uh, house's household uh, as a blacksmith, because that's his trade, and, and trying to smuggle those letters and the, and the cord out under their noses. So that's uh, that's the, the gist of the plot. Great stuff. Um, and so after Naseby, we get a bit of a lull, don't we, where the king is sort of brought to talks, um, but that doesn't really work. And we get a resumption of hostilities. Yeah. So so throughout the war, there were um, there were attempts made to um, come to an agreement. But I mean, neither side seriously I think wanted them. You know, they were always used as a as a bit of a tick in the box to say we've attempted peace. Um, they won't budge. Um, you know that that sort of thing. Demands were made that were plainly not going to be accepted by either side. You know that. But I think after Nearsby, um, and and I mentioned the Royalist infantry going down there. But what what wasn't defeated was the bulk of the Royalist cavalry. And they went with the king and the king spent uh, months after that attempting to get to Scotland. So that you know, there was a real sense that this entire um, defeat at Nearsby could be turned on its head if only the king could join up with his Scottish general, the Marquis of Montrose. Uh, Montrose at that point had all of Scotland under his control. So that would you know, if, if the king took his cavalry up there, Montrose lacked cavalry. He'd been crying out for a long time for cavalry support to finish the job. Um, there, he'd called a Scottish parliament in the king's name, uh, which was due to muster at Glasgow, you know, that within a, a couple of months. So if the king could get up there and join him with the cavalry, you know, he could then come back uh, into England and there was a cat and mouse game after that, really. The king trying to break through the Midlands to get to um, the North Parliament, you know, intercepting him. And in the end, it was decided that he would send his cavalry up there. It was too dangerous to send the king uh, with them. King remained at um, Newark. And he gave it to the worst possible commander that he could have given it to. So basically, uh, he handed over the cavalry to complete the defeat from within to George Lord Digby, uh, who was his meddler in chief, I call him, uh, British Rasputin. 
you're not a fan of his i, I, no. I could tell and <laughs> <laughs> the, the 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 man has a catastrophic history throughout the war of just mucking things up trying to sort of uh do things underhand to, to further the royalist cause and just being completely you know humiliated but actually humiliating the king as well really you know he's he's trying to negotiate to get hull he's trying to no- negotiate to get uh Aylesbury, um various different towns you know plots to to pull other people into the royalist cause and uh very little success so everything he touches uh, crumbles, right? Uh, yeah. Now, one one thing um, that we should mention throughout the Civil War is is the huge cost in lives because it was a particularly brutal war. Because up until now, we've discussed the battles, which imply that's where um, casualties and, and, and deaths were, were isolated to. But that's not really the case, is it? It was a really brutal Civil War. That's right. Yeah. Yeah. You've, you know, you've got when, whenever a town is besieged, you know, yes, you've got the army in there and uh, the, the, the attackers, but it's also that civilian population that is suffering as well, um, it, you know, indirectly. If it's not through bombardment, um, it's through starvation. Um, and, and then just the I mean, the sheer cost um, of, of trying to sustain armies moving around the country um, and, and the impact on people's lives. Um, it's just immense, you know, as you see in proportion wise, in terms of losses, it was just huge. Yeah, I'd read nearly 900,000 dead across England, Scotland and Ireland, which is just a massive figure for the country in those days, particularly when you consider that England, England's population was 5 million. So eventually the king is... Well, he's caught sort of he, he, on the one hand, he's negotiating with with Parliament, but on the other, he's trying to get help from abroad. And and that, that's when Parliament sort of gets fed up. And, and that's when the writing's on the wall for Charles. Is, is that how, how does that play out, though? Because it seems such a shocking event at the time to kill the king that many parliamentarians, as you say, w- w- didn't want this to happen. But yet it happens. So, yeah, I mean, it was shocking, you know, to, to get to that point. But it, again, you know, Nearsby itself didn't deliver that outcome. Um, and and to, to an extent, neither did the fact that Charles was looking for, for help from abroad. I mean, the, the thing with Charles is, although, yes, he was reaching out to, to Denmark, France, even Holland, um, there wasn't any military, you know, significant military support coming in for them from them, you know, potentially money um you know and things like that but I, I wonder sometimes whether if if one of those countries did present um an army would charles have accepted it you know considering he wouldn't march on london with his own army you know i, I think it's almost like a, a bit of a last ditch you know he's he's kind of exploring the options but actually will he seriously go through with that it's funny, really. He's presented as a tyrant by the opposing side, yet when he has the option to behave in a particularly tyrannical way by either marching on London or importing another army, he doesn't do it. That That's exactly it. And, and I, I, I don't believe that Charles could be a tyrant if he tried. Yes, it's one thing about how you deal with people, your approach and your style, um, you know, things like that. If you're pig-headed or... But Charles could have learned a lot from his opponents. And and if he had displayed a lot of the um, characteristics of his opponents, there, there either wouldn't have been a civil war at that point or he would have won it outright. That's the, the controversy about Charles. You know, he is portrayed as a tyrant. But actually, when, when you look at the differences you know, for example, Cromwell dissolved Parliament. Cromwell handpicked a new council of state to replace it, who then handpicked a parliament to replace the one he dissolved. Now, that is often billed as the actions of a strong leader. Charles never got anywhere near that. Charles didn't have the, the chance to handpick any, you know, MPs. I mean, the, the, the monarchies always had, um, they always had 
ways and means of maybe excluding people. You know, they would make someone a sheriff and then they couldn't sit for for parliament. But, you know, Char Charles is never near that. If if he did employ some of those tactics, then things might have been completely different. But that wasn't Charles. You know, th there's um, there's letters from people at the time saying, you know, our king just needs to act. He needs to be strong. You know, he needs to be more ruthless. And Charles just was not ruthless. Interesting, interesting. Um, now you've mentioned the Marcus of Montrose and the attempt for Charles to, to um, link up with him in Scotland, which is the basis of the King's Captain. And you've got a new novel out, just to, just about to come out, um, the King's Cavalier. Now, what's the what's the plot of that? I haven't read that yet because it's not available. But um, um, yeah. what what it will be by the time this this um, podcast comes out, I'm reliably informed. Um, what what is the plot for that? So the King's Cavalier is the um, the last in the three series. So this is uh, Captain Maxwell Walker again. Um, so the 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 second book is um, the King's Captain, um, and that deals with Montrose, Scotland, but also another crucial battle in Yorkshire, um, Sherburn and Elmet. Um, the King's Cavalier um, is based in a, in a in a point where the war is over. The king's been defeated. Um, he's, you know, you've now got a diplomatic war, um, or a, a a war of a war of words and and sort of backstabbing. Um, and this is with the king, the Scots, uh, the New Model Army, and Parliament all trying to outmaneuver each other. The king wants to. Um, end up on top despite the outcome of the military victory he's using all of them against each other he's negotiating with some of them but they are equally equally approaching him saying look the scots are coming to him saying we'll give you military support just agree to establish presbyterianism in england um, because they had realized the parliament um, led by a, a puritan majority um you know or, or certainly the puritans were in key uh key points of power you know they're approaching charles he's refusing initially saying no you know he's not going to um throw in his lot with the scots and then in the end he agrees um you've got parliament approaching charles with official terms but you've even got the new model army who are taking it upon themselves really to to present um separate terms to parliament um to try and again outmaneuver parliament because the new model army a full um of that more puritan independent sort of religious outlook um classed as extremists whereas parliament um have moderates in there as well so yeah they they, they each you know the army fears if whether parliament is going to disband it and what will happen to to all of their their soldiers with these religious beliefs what will happen to them um, and Parliament fears, well, actually, what if the army goes further here? They're all vying for power. And the king at, the, at that point is in captivity. Um, it's a fascinating period because I really think that in Carisbrook Castle, which is where a, a lot of the book is set, um, you do see the the real king come out. Um, he's isolated. He's got none of his advisors or very, very, very few that are there. None of his most trusted or more well-known ones and uh, he's he's almost cut off from the outside world he has he's not able to get many letters to his wife um at that point um he's relying on the services of a, a few people on the island um to get news and uh, yeah he does i think in that despondency and and sort of bleak isolation i think you start you, you start to see this character come out that doesn't have the veneer of the crown um, shadowing it, you know. So this is Charles sort of <laughs> making jokes with the governor. For example, the governor falls flat on his face on a walk around the castle walls, and and Charles, this the governor is his captor, basically appointed by Parliament. And Charles says that's punishment for the equivocation that you've been using towards me, you know. And he's, you know, he's making light of it. He's not actually, you know, saying that it's God struck him down, but it's this it's this almost childish humor and how charles argues in an in a, an almost childish way with with his captors you know 
Uh, so he's not sort of um, moping around the battlements, bashing his head against the wall of his dungeon cell. He, he's he's not he's not a, he's not sort of a crushed man at this stage, is he? Well, as a as a deeply religious king, he always believed that God would um, God's will, you know, would would be done. He wouldn't allow traitors and rebels to prosper. But as a man. I think Charles recognised that the, you know, the chips were down, and this, this was becoming tough. Um, and and there are there are moments when when he, when he does sink into, um, you know, um, depression there. Um, but there are equally moments when when he is con- consistently seeing beyond it and looking for the next option. You know, what can I do? Um, how can we reverse this? Um, and then there's there's numerous escape attempts which are, are interesting in themselves. You know, he gets uh, trapped in his uh, the window of his bedroom, um, trying to get out of it one night. Um, and this is where the the, the iron bar is is removed, um, and he gets stuck. I mean, it was a, a tiny gap to fit through, but he he clearly thought he could. And there was a moment that he he thought probably horrified at the the prospect of being. Um, found by the guards stuck in a window you know it's <laughs> yeah he's pop yeah yeah talking to you now I, i've got a lot more sympathy than i did an hour ago i think um right. it, it's it's it, he's an interesting character now we're, we're running out of time but it'd be great to get you back on to talk about maybe the trial of charles the first and then his yeah. execution um but i i mentioned this at the start you're you're, you're the um uh, you're the host of the Cavalier cast, so I'll put a link in there for our listeners if they want to explore more. And I, I saw there was an episode on the Levelers that looks very interesting. Um, yeah. I, I just thought we could briefly mention the Levelers because I've always had this, I guess, well, not always, but recently I've been thinking, are the Levelers are sort of, um, were they the kind of Corbinistas of their day, you know, long hair, <laughs> um, beards, craft beer drinking, or... Um, <laughs> With the red wall, are they leveling up? Are they, is are they are they are we seeing a reincarnation of the levelers in the last five ten years? Uh, well, you don't have to answer that one. But what yeah. were the levelers? <laughs> the le- the levelers. Well, um, the levelers uh, really pushed the boundaries of of what of hopes for 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 a a post-war settlement. Um, they they wanted to make the most of their victory. Um, they certainly didn't want to see what eventually happened, uh, and that is just a, a replacement of one government for another that is either just as bad or worse. Um, the levelers wanted to, as I say, they fought, they wanted more rights for the common man. Um, and although they didn't push for voting rights for women, um, you, again, you've got to remember the context of the time. Even just to push for universal male suffrage was certainly not what any uh, commander in that in that war, royalist or parliamentarian, was ever advocating, um, and it, and it got to the point during the king's captivity when um, the army, who where you know the levelers are predominantly you know they found in the army you know as well as in the towns and cities you know they're in the towns and cities supporting leveler leaders you know with protests, but in the army that leveler contingent um, petition Fairfax and Cromwell. And Ayrton, uh, and they're asking um, that, that more should be done. You know that, that there should be a push to um, uh, ab- abolish the House of Lords. Um, er, you know, every everybody, every man should get a say in government, the government they live under, regardless of their their property holdings and things. Um, and and re- the, the the new model army leadership found that extremely dangerous. Um, so again, we mentioned Essex and. And Manchester, who didn't want to see um, the king off the throne, but then y- you've got that step further again, where even F- Fairfax, Cromwell, and Ayton are not wanting to see that level, you know, of of democracy. Um, they they don't want that, you know, and they, they are told firmly by uh, certainly by Ayton and Cromwell um, in the debates that are held that it's not the right of of any man just because he breathes air to have a say in government you know it has to be only those that um have holdings more than a certain value um and the levelers are not happy with that you know they see this as their leadership selling out you know they they've expelled 
blood for the cause. They've laid down their lives, a lot of them, you know, lost friends to, to win this war. And now it looks like they are going to return to, you know, how it was. Um, so it gets to the point actually where, and this is in the, the, the King's Cavalier, um, where the levelers almost come to a breach with the army um, and there, there potentially looks to be um, revolts within the army. So <clears throat> it does come as a godsend to the new model army leadership when the king escapes ca captivity, because at that point they were able to cut off talks with the levelers and, and, and mobilize the levelers and the army to go on the, the 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 hunt for the king it's interesting with the levelers because a lot of what you've described comes to pass later on in the 19th century and early 20th century well I, I guess you know leaving aside women's suffrage but yeah for, for male suffrage in the 19th century um so look we're, we're, we're nearly out of time um i just want had one more question for you before we go um yes. which is are we are, are we cavaliers or are we roundheads? Oh, see this, this uh, the, the million dollar question. So I think I think it's sometimes not as 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 easy as that. So you, Prince Rupert, for example, I, I I do think there's there's elements of of sort of roundhead behaviour. You know, he's a serious minded, sober, you know, as, as sober as a Puritan. You know, in his 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 ethics. Um, you know, he doesn't drink a lot. Um, I think there's elements where where people can be both. But I certainly think that anyone with a fascination about this period, and it's a divisive period, isn't it? It's a, it's a, a civil war. I think there's in the majority of cases there tends to be a sympathy for one side or the other. You know, so, I think so. Yes. Yeah. And and a lot of the time, you know, it is dictated to by perhaps what what you you read you know and your your beliefs and and also there's a difficulty because it's um so long ago now that uh, that the royalist um ethics are alien to us today you know and you often see oh charles how can anyone believe that they rule by divine right you know that absurd you know certainly none of his people believed it well they did you know it was a widespread belief it's not just the king here saying uh, you know i rule by god's uh god's right here you know you you just do what i say um there, there was serious belief you know people groaning when he was executed and, and believing that god would now um they would incur god's wrath uh for what had been done are we royalist or or parliamentarian for one yeah i would say i am a cavalier um, I find that the manner in which Parliament moved to bypass the law of the land, you know, and issuing their own edicts, um, refusing to compromise when he when the king gave way time and time again, um, you know, leaving them humiliated. I, I think they've gone too far. A great way to end it, to, to leave us with a thought that isn't necessarily as clear cut. Yeah, exactly. Exactly. Well, what I will say is that um, courage and bravery has no allegiance. So I, I think it's important, whatever um, whatever people's sympathies, you've got to just understand that everybody might have a different opinion and people have a different opinion for various reasons. So it's always fascinating and interesting to find out, you know, what people think. I like that. Yeah, particularly uh, in, in today's difficult times. Yeah. Mark, thanks so much. Uh, I'll put Thanks, in all the links for what we've discussed um, for our listeners. It's been it's been a I, there's never enough time. But uh, thank you so much. Oh, no, thank you. Yeah, I enjoyed talking about it. Um, Good stuff. Now, for those of you interested, Cromwell, the movie starring Richard Harris as Oliver Cromwell and Alec Guinness as Charles I is well worth a watch. So I've put a link in the show notes. I've also put in a link to a piece by Leander Delisle all about the gathering storm as the Civil War loomed. Now, dear listener, am I a roundhead or a cavalier? I always thought I was a parliamentarian because the execution of Charles I served as an important reminder to future monarchs of what awaited them should they behave tyrannically. But as Mark asks, was Charles I actually a tyrant? Completely separately, on the Aspects of History website, we have a piece by Sharon Mass all about the 
grisly and tragic events at Jonestown in Guyana in 1979, when nearly a thousand people died in a mass suicide. Coming up next week, we have Alex Gerlis talking about espionage during World War II. I do hope you've enjoyed listening about the Civil War. Thank you and good night.